Last week, I started to share with you what God's been teaching what God's been teaching me for my favorite books in the Bible, which is the Old Testament book of Joshua. It's a book I got to preach through in 2012, but because the book is 24 chapters, I just, I tended to skip a few of the middle chapters, stuff in the middle, but it's actually been those middle parts, those parts where Joshua and his people start to conquer and officially take over these different territories and nations for themselves, the land that God had promised them. God's been using those middle parts to teach me lessons, lessons about, about faith, lessons about victory, lessons about understanding. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is to help us as Bible readers, which I hope you are, help us as Bible readers make the connection between the Old Testament and the New between life B.C. and life today, now that Jesus reigns through his life, death, and resurrection. Making that connection is important as Bible readers. And after making that connection between sort of then and now, we apply it to our lives today. How do we see it as relevant to our lives today? And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to make that connection between old and new under the lordship of Jesus and then apply it to our lives today. At is slightly easier, thankfully, with books like Exodus and Joshua, Old Testament books like that, because they so obviously point to Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus, but we especially see it in books like Exodus and Joshua. That's because God's using death and destruction to deliver his people from slavery and death under, under Egypt through, through the Red Sea, through, through a sea on the other side where there was life and, and a promised land. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. In fact, it's the ultimate Old Testament foreshadowing of what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection and promise of eternity for those of us who trust him today. So we see lots of parallels to life today under Jesus when we read books like Joshua. So it's wonderful to make those connections. And I get excited to make those connections. That's what we're going to do together. Last week, we got in faith. Joshua 11. So turn there with me, if you would, today, as we, as we get a lesson in victory. And a lesson in victory today, but we're going to start by reading what we read at the end of last week to kind of help make the connection. Here's how that chapter ended, Joshua 11:23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. This was this promised land. And Joshua gave that land for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. So, so it seems like Israel's plight of, of homelessness, of joblessness, finally over. God has given his people a fertile land on which to both live and to work. And it's going to be divided up according to the 12 tribes of Israel. God's people were made up of these tribes or, or big extended families. And they would live on these different lands, all 12 of them. So this is good news, right? They have their victory. God's people have gotten their promised inheritance. Except something strange happens. The book doesn't just end and say, then Joshua died and they got a great new leader. Instead, God's people choose to not open or, or more precisely, they act like children who open the greatest gift they've ever received, but they don't really take advantage of it. They don't really use, us, use the gift the way it was designed to be used. So what do I mean? 
Well, we next hear about this gift. Remember, the gift here is the promised land, this inheritance. We next hear about it in Joshua 13. We've just read Joshua 11. We skipped to Joshua 13, starting in verse 1. And I want to show something to you as we inch towards Joshua 18, which is going to be our principal passage this morning. All right, so just follow me with you. This is going to be up on the screen, Joshua 13:1. So now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> Great reminder, right? Like, thanks. Thanks, we just said that. Um, and there remains yet very much land to possess. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what just happened? God gave them all this land. Why haven't they possessed it? Skip down to verse 6. God says, I myself will drive these other nations out from before the people of Israel, only allot or divide the land to Israel for an inheritance as I've commanded you. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. That happened years ago, it seems. We don't know how long, many years ago, but we know here after God has said, here's your inheritance, divide it amongst yourselves, take full advantage of it. Now Joshua's old and advanced in years. So many years probably have passed since God said, here's the land, use it, enjoy it for all it's worth. But now Joshua's old and advanced in years. Well, that doesn't sound, that sounds a little disconcerting. Well, we hear more disconcerting reports start to roll in. First, Here's a few tribes of the Israelites. One was called uh, the Reubenites, one was the Gadites, one were the, uh, was Manasseh. These are all just different parts of God's people. And we're told in chapter 13, verse 13, yet the people of Israel did not drive out the other nations, in this case, the Geshurites and the, Mahach, uh, the Machathites. But Geshur and, and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. So God's people get this territory, this wonderful gift, but they say, well, you know what, we don't care if other people use it too. God told us, you know, to use all the land, we'll just use part of it. Well, more disappointing news comes in, in like fashion about the tribe of Judah, a different uh, part of God's family. Joshua chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, another sort of pagan nation, the people of Judah couldn't drive them out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Then we hear about the tribe of Ephraim, another part of God's family, chapter 16, verse 10. They did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. So you start to see a pattern. People will get a wonderful gift, but they don't take full advantage of it. They, they kind of hold off on it. Joshua 17, verses 12 through 13. The people of Manasseh could not take possession of all those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But they did not utterly drive them out. What's interesting is in these chapters, we start to get these meticulous details about the land. And we can tell that the tribes were living on, on the easiest, most accessible land. I've actually drawn a little picture for you of that up here. You see that? You like that? So, so you see, people go to the land, they enjoy the land, but they just want to enjoy the, the safe parts, the nice parts, the parts they don't have to do any work to take possession of it. They didn't bother going out to the edges and take the rest of the land that was promised to them to enjoy the full gift that God's given them. And this sort of laissez-faire, go-the-easy-route attitude leads to our principal verses this morning. Okay? So they're being kind of lazy, kind of laissez-faire. Then we get to Joshua 18, okay, starting in verse 1. Let's read that together. This is God's word. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, and they set up the tent of meeting there. 
the land lay subdued before them. That's a hint. Like, here it is. Here's the silver platter. But there remained among the people seven tribes whose inheritance had not been apportioned yet. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Some of the other Bible translations translate verse 3 like this. How long will you be slack in taking this land that the Lord your God has given you? I, I like that a lot. I think that really describes it very well. How long will you be slack in taking this land? Let me stop here. Let's, let's stop here and pray for God's help as we seek to make the connection and apply this to our lives. God, we, we hear from your word here. We see a pattern emerging in Scripture that, that God's people took a gift, but they decided to just not take advantage of it. They decided, let, let's, just, let's just be content with what's safe, what's comfortable. Now, God, we, we ask that you would help us apply that to our own lives under the lordship of Jesus. Please inspire us, encourage us, convict us where needed, and help us so we might be more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. For my master's education, I had the privilege of attending a wonderful seminary just north of Chicago, Illinois. We lived on campus there most of the time, and there were a lot of perks about living on campus next to the place where you go to school and you get your education. But I have to admit the greatest of which was likely the fact that we lived down the street from Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player to ever live. And if you know me, you know I have, I have a little bit of an affection. I like this, this guy, Michael Jordan. There's some things about his life I don't like, but I also choose to gloss over because he's a sports hero, and that's wrong of me. But I don't want to get into that right now. I like Michael Jordan, okay? So one fall, as the holiday Halloween approached, we'd heard a rumor that they were going to hand out candy at Michael Jordan's estate. Now, I realize Halloween it is, it's since I've lived here, especially, is an almost exclusively American holiday. And it's controversial in the church as well to even think about it, even say this out loud. So don't judge me when I tell you that we went begging for candy that night, that Halloween night, at one particular residence, right, just down the road, all right? It, 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 I felt like it needed to happen. So we went down the road. And we go in. We, we get just inside the gate. They're handing out candy. I try to peek around, see if I can see the house. Hey, Michael! You know, what's up? What's up, M&J? No, 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 I didn't really do that. I was too, too embarrassed, but, but you couldn't see the home, and I was kind of bummed, like, man, I just wanted to see his house. Thankfully, you know, a couple years later, I'm on the internet, and I saw on my news feed that Michael Jordan's house was up for sale, and it was actually reduced in price to a reasonable $15 million, all right? So I, I and I was like, well, here you go. I uh, checked our bank account, couldn't do it. It's a great rental property, maybe, but uh, but it was listed everywhere because the price had been reduced, including this video. So here's a tour for you, a quick tour of Michael Jordan's house, and I'm, I'm going to make a point with this. Hang with me. I have a question for you afterwards. Property tour of Michael Jordan's home. You call yourself a trophy property? A mansion? <laughs> Let me show you something. You think you're big? Well, I'm bigger. You say you're great at entertaining? Have you seen my pool pavilion? Putting green? My game rooms? Had a drink in my wine cellar or a cigar in my humidor? How about a movie? You have an exercise room. I have a complete gym, state-of-the-art equipment. You might have a basketball hoop, but I have a full-size regulation court designed and played on by the greatest of all time. Oh, we can be friends. But if you challenge me, <laughs> I've won six championships. I am 2700 Point Lane. I am the Michael Jordan Estate. 
Start your legend. Now, imagine, if you would, with me for a moment, that you received this property, Michael Jordan's property, as your inheritance. Someone bought it for you. They gave it to you as an inheritance, as a gift. All right, so, so you, you move down to Deerfield, Illinois. You take up residence there, and it's a massive property. Here's my question for you. If you could choose, you got a tour there. If you could choose one part of that property on which to live and enjoy, what would it be? One part of that property to live and enjoy, what would it be? Yes. The basketball court. Amen, sister. I hear you on that. A full-size basketball court. Yes. The game room was pretty sweet, right? You got to love that. Yes. The movie theater. It was nice. It kind of had the old 80s style to it, too. I like that. I dug it. Anyone? Yes. The wine cellar. Appreciate your honesty. You're in church. Some people would be like, don't touch the humidor or the dine cellar. But you're honest, bro, and I hear you. So, <laughs> so let me just tell you, I actually had, had some time to think about this. Those were all cho- choices I considered as well, especially the basketball court and the putting green. Putting green, too. But, but for me, it'd have to be the kitchen. I started to think rationally, what do I actually, if I could only live on one part of this property, which part would I live on? I, I, need, I need food. I need water. Survival. I have to choose the kitchen. It's a trick question. Uh, I've got to choose the kitchen if I'm going to really live there. And you can still have a very good life living in the kitchen because it's a very nice kitchen. So this is my, actually my point for us in a nutshell this morning, my question for us. If God gives you a mansion, why would you only use the kitchen? If God gives you a mansion, why would you only use the kitchen? God's people received this incomparable property as an inheritance, yet they decided to use only one part of it. For all of us here who've trusted Jesus, God has given you a glorious inheritance. Forever forgiveness, inclusion into God's family. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have an eternity of getting to to know and talk to your Creator. These are all things that happen immediately when you trust Jesus. Everything necessary for life and survival. And yet, God is so gracious, he has given us in Christ even more privileges. So you might be a new Christian, and you're just sort of getting familiar with the privileges I've just mentioned. right? Life forever, talking to God, forgiveness through Christ. And that's awesome. I encourage you to grow in that. Or, Or maybe... You're interested in those privileges I mentioned, and yes and amen. I would encourage you to trust Jesus to to get those privileges. But as we go stronger, for those of us who follow Jesus, we get the chance to explore additional privileges that are ours because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a lot like what we read in Joshua 17, the tribe of Manasseh. Did you read that? They couldn't move to the edges of their property, the edges of their inheritance, But then we're told when they did grow strong, they failed to take advantage of all that was theirs. They they just said, you know what, it's just easier to stay here, to stay in the safe zone. I think that's a a great example, and sadly, I can relate. I've been walking with God for about 20 years now, over 20 years, and I very much prefer the kitchen, life in the kitchen. Just give me what's necessary for survival, for, for, for life, It's much more safe, it's much more comfortable, it's much less risky if I stay there. So when I hear Joshua's words to Israel, I hear them as addressed to me. Let me read them again. How long will you put off 
going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you? How long will you put that on? How long will you be slack in that, Ryan? There are all kinds of examples of what we have, of privileges we have, because of Jesus' victory and death on our behalf. All kinds of wonderful gifts. And I encourage you to think of what it is that you're not taking advantage of that you have in Christ as a Christian. All kinds of examples of that. I jotted down three this morning that I feel we might put off, as Joshua put it. Perhaps one will resonate with you. And I would encourage you to think on that and meditate on that. None of these, I'm going to mention this morning, and this is important, none of these are going to be necessary for salvation, for knowing God forever. But they are available to you. So why not take advantage of the entire inheritance that God has given to you who have trusted Christ? Why not, right? So here they are. Here's the first one I think that we often don't take advantage of, and speaking forgiveness. Out on the edge of our property, it is the ability to authoritatively speak forgiveness into the lives of other people. As we make the transition from Old Testament to New, here's a verse that can be helpful, or a few verses. This is from John chapter 20. Read this with me if you would. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Read that again. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, that last verse is no joke, is it? It's no joke. And in fact, it's been fairly controversial over the years. On the one hand, it's actually been adopted by the Roman Catholic Church as evidence that through the apostolic line of Peter, the church has the ability and the authority, the authority to, to offer out or withhold forgiveness from people. Now, I think that ignores the context here of what's going on. Jesus, risen from the dead, he's sending out the apostles with the power of the Holy Spirit, which sounds a lot like he's sending them out like the Great Commission, a lot like evangelism, a lot like going out to share our faith. And I think that's largely what's going on here. Jesus is saying through the gospel, people can accept forgiveness, they cannot accept forgiveness. However, I also think that doesn't quite do full justice to the level of authority that's being spoken of here. You, you offer out forgiveness, forgiveness is given. You withhold it, it will be withheld. My humble take is that Jesus is encouraging those who trust him. That guys you have, and gals, you have an authority to remind anyone of forgiveness. That, that forgiveness is available to anyone in Christ Jesus. And sometimes that's going to be withheld because people don't want to accept Jesus' forgiveness in their lives. That's what it means. By, you have that authority to offer that out and the authority to boldly speak forgiveness in the lives of those who are already following Jesus, to remind them of the forgiveness they have in Christ. Think about it. We have this tremendous gift to offer what no one else possesses, forever forgiveness. We know that forgiveness always comes at a cost, always. Sometimes the cost when you extend forgiveness is pride. Sometimes it's a literal cost. You forgive your debts, right? For those of you who have children, when you forgive them, you know sometimes the cost of your property. <laughs> it's the cost of something you love that's all of a sudden broken. Sometimes forgiveness is a, is a cost to your rights over someone. 
I deserve to hold this over you because you've wronged me. But forgiveness says, I'm going to sacrifice that right. In other words, it's a great cost to you. And nobody has paid such a cost as Jesus Christ, who took every offense, every wrongdoing upon himself on the cross so that he might be able to dole out and give out through his people an inexhaustible forgiveness. That's something then that you have uniquely as a Christian, an inexhaustible forgiveness to dole out at any time. And yet we communicate lesser words, lesser phrases when encouraging a downtrodden friend who's racked by guilt or when talking and responding to someone who has wronged us. Lesser words like, you know what? It's in the past. Or you're my mate. No worries. That's what we tell people when they feel guilty. Or, or we try to relate to them by saying things like, hey, nobody's her perfect or I'm no saint. Instead of holding out the words that people most need to hear, which is, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. I had that experience this summer where I was chatting with a friend of mine. I Admittedly, I was feeling guilty. Uh, I was feeling uh, weak because I felt like there was an area of my life that was, wasn't right with the Lord, and, and I still was feeling bad about it. As a man, there was just an area of my life that, that, that wasn't what I hoped it would be. And I was explaining this to my friend, and I have to admit his response surprised me. It initially stung me a little bit, but ultimately I was so grateful for that. He just looked me in the eye and said, hey, man, don't forget, you're forgiven. And I thought to myself, why don't people say that more often? Why don't we kind of get, get to a person and, and look them in the eye and say, hey, you're forgiven. And the reason, I, the reason I think we don't is that there's a sting with that. When you communicate to someone either because they've wronged you or because they're feeling guilty and you want to communicate God's forgiveness, you're forgiven. There's an initial sting to it, isn't there? Think about it. What are people hearing when they hear, I forgive you, God forgives you? God wants, he waits to forgive you. What are they hearing? They're often hearing a few hard-to-hear things before they hear the best thing, right? They're, first of all, they're hearing that I'm wrong. If, if someone communicates, you're forgiven, the receiver of that is hearing, whoa, that means I'm wrong. That means my way isn't as good as God's way. What I have done in the past is not what God has said to do in the past. And that is a very humbling thing, to have to admit, they're also hearing, there's nothing I can do to make it fully right. In other words, I can't work off this forgiveness. I can't do enough to make it up to you or to make it up to God to make this relationship right again. In other words, they have to feel a sense of helplessness, don't they, when they hear you're forgiven. And finally, to hear the words and accept the words, you're forgiven, I, I've got to I've got to recognize this is good that it's out in the open. It's good that someone else is a part of hearing that I've done wrong, which is really hard because often we think of religion as a very private matter. I'll accept God's forgiveness, but that's very personal between me and God. When someone else communicates it to us, it's like, okay, you know about this too. <laughs> we have to accept that that's good. And so I think there's, these, there's always these layers almost of resistance to forgiveness when we choose to show it to someone else. And that's a big reason why I think we resist it. We know that there's a sting attached because we felt it ourselves. And yet, for the person who accepts forgiveness, it is life-transforming. Right? It's, you are forgiven exposes us. It, it, it exposes us. We feel almost, almost naked as a result. 
But that's only so that we can be rightly clothed, fully clothed by God's forgiveness, by a right standing with God and with other people. That's what it's for. And so that is life transformation. So I want to encourage you, speak forgiveness. You have that gift, that authority, and you may just be the only one who speaks it into someone else's life. Here's another example of something we don't often take advantage of as followers of Jesus, and that is the authority to confront evil. I put it a little differently if you're following along in our notes, but I changed it, changed it last night to authority to confront evil. We're going to read here from Luke 10, 17 through 20, and read about this authority we have as Christians, a gift really from God. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, so the, see, 72 people went on a mission, and listen to what happened while they're on this mission. Saying to return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject for you, to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's a few reasons why I find this passage to be such a gift and so powerful for those of us who've trusted Jesus. Number one, that evil is subject to Christians. Evil can be subject to us who, are, who call Christ our Lord because of Jesus. And may I preach a fuller sermon on spiritual warfare. And one of the things I said that, that was behind every, every act and every system of evil that we can see, there is an unseen evil. There is an unseen and far more sinister evil at work behind that evil that we can see tangibly in life. And that is the work of the devil. There are times then when Christians are called upon to use their God-given authority to confront evil. To just actually say out loud or, or grab a friend and say out loud with them, God, we rebuke the person and work of the devil in Jesus' name. We rebuke what's going on here. And, and to do that requires some discernment. First of all, it requires some boldness. Who wants to do that? I understand. And yet, why wouldn't we want to do that? To help someone be released from, from something influencing them, from troubling them? It requires some discernment, of course. You're probably not going to say this around your friend who just exaggerates some when they tell stories. right? You're probably not going to rebuke an evil spirit in Jesus' name around them. You're probably not going to do this when confronting a lack of generosity in the workplace. Like when your boss doesn't give you the time off you requested for that long weekend, you're probably going to not be like in front of him. I rebuke that. I rebuke what Satan's doing here in Jesus' name. All right, You may feel that's unjust towards you. Probably not the right time to do that. It requires some discernment, of course. But when you see prejudice fueled by hatred, many of us have seen that lately. When you encounter sexual perversity, deceit that has completely changed and, and twisted a friend, almost making them become something that they were never, a different person. When you see someone under addiction, they've given themselves over to an obsession that is hurting them, when you, when you encounter paranoia, mental instability, it's time to, to, to use that authority God's given you attack. And feel free to even, even make it as a suggestion. God, as much as the devil might be at work here, we ask that you would remove him in Jesus' name. Do it with authority. I love this passage says, even, even the demons are subject to us. Amazing. Another reason I love this passage is it says that there's 72, not a select few. Notice that 72 people went out. 
Many of us who follow Jesus don't ever think to rebuke evil in Jesus' name because we think that's reserved for a select few people, like pastors or people who have a special kind of gift or calling for these kinds of things. We imagine in our mind the exorcist happening, and we think that's not, that's not me. But wh- why do you think Jesus chose 72 for this mission? Why not just choose the apostles, right? Why not Matthew and Peter and, and James and John? He's done that in the past. He sent them out on missions, did the same thing. Why 72? Don't you think that he most likely wanted to show us that any follower of Jesus, any follower of Jesus, has been granted this authority to confront evil? Another reason I love this passage is it reminds us still of what's most important, right? Eternal life with Jesus is most essential, right? Jesus says, and yet don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus reminds us still that the kitchen is still best. Being part of God's forever family is the best thing in the world and the most essential. And yet, you've still been given these other gifts too we can take advantage of. One more, let me mention just one more this morning. One more example of an inherited gift I think we don't often take advantage of as believers in Jesus, and that's just enjoying God. This ability, this gift to enjoy God forever. Psalm 1611 puts it this way. This is David speaking to God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Doesn't that sound inviting and wonderful? And yet some of us, even as Christians, haven't experienced that. And I believe it's actually possible to have trusted Jesus and still not have actually enjoyed him. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. To have not experienced that. that, that's actually been my experience. I'd always been a person, before I met Jesus, who found pleasure in life. Lots of pleasure in life. In fact, well, many people would say, Ryan, you've found too much pleasure in life up to this point. That's because I had, in my old life, taken pleasure in what the Apostle John called the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and that's where I found my pleasure in life. So after trusting Jesus, I read my Bible, I went to church, I served in youth group, but I was suspicious of anyone who said they took pleasure in God who found pleasure and passion in God because, after all, I'd taken too much pleasure. So I was an 18-year-old working at a summer camp. I was actually sharing this with a friend of mine, and a day later, they come to me, and they hand me this book. It's a book called uh, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And I knew what a hedonist was because I'd been called one before (laughs) because of my previous life. I was like, wait a minute. Very familiar. Right? A hedonist is someone, is someone who revels in pleasure, in the pleasure of the world. So I thought, a Christian hedonist? Like, what does that mean? It's not seem like, it seems like a contradiction. But as I read, I found out that, that it's someone who brings actually maximum glory to God by enjoying him forever. That finding your passion and your pleasure and your joy in God actually brings him more glory than anything else. And it makes sense because as you find passion and pleasure in him, that pours out of you to other people and God is greatly glorified in your life. But I'm skeptical, so I'm reading along. And I I come across this quote of the books by John Piper, and he he quoted C.S. Lewis, a guy I'd heard of before, Narnia, etc., 
I read Mere Christianity. And I don't exaggerate when I read this quote from one of C.S. Lewis's most famous sermons. It, it changed my life. It changed the way I related to God. Here's what he says. I want to share all of it for you. Lewis says that there lurks in most modern minds the notion to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of our own good is a bad thing. However, if we consider all the unblushing promises of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that began to change my whole perspective. Wait a minute. My desires before I began to know Jesus were actually not great. They were small. And I can find all, put all my desires, all my enjoyment, all my sense of passion and pleasure in a relationship with God. It's incredible. That began a new journey for me of enjoying him, of stopping more often when I read the Gospels to celebrate the compassion of Jesus or, or the wisdom of Jesus or celebrate people's faith-filled response to Jesus. I'd be like, yes, this is great. Stay here. Linger here. Praise God for this here. Share this with somebody else because that often completes an enjoyment of God is when you share something beautiful with someone else. A journey of, of holding out my hands and asking the Holy Spirit to fill me to fill me it's such that a lot of times I'll just start to sing when I asked for him to do that. A song of joy, something I never would have done before. A journey of delighting in, in creatures found beneath the sea, of a windswept cliff untouched by human hands. Or most recently getting really excited about butterfly season in the mountains of, of North Carolina. Because I know, as I see these butterflies everywhere, blue and gold and yellow, all around me, these are little hints of heaven and the enjoyment I'm going to experience with God forever. A little hors d'oeuvre, a little taste of it now. These are from God for me to enjoy. I don't know what that might be for you, but what are you not taking advantage of as a Christian? God has given you a glorious inheritance. It might be that, that authority to speak forgiveness in the lives of others or the God-given authority to confront evil, or maybe it's just enjoying and delighting in the God you call Savior. None of these are requirements for salvation, and I want to make that very clear, but having trusted Jesus, why put off, why be slack in taking advantage of all that God's given to you? We've inherited a mansion. Why would you just stay in the kitchen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson from the Old Testament, from the book of Joshua, and for just helping us see how we can apply it to our own lives, how we can apply what you've said in the past to the present through Jesus Christ. And we know that we too have been given an inheritance, life forever, forgiveness through Christ, grace, being included in the Father's family. Those things are wonderful and glorious. We give praise and glory and honor to you for those and also for all the riches you've poured out on us in abundance and in addition to our salvation. God, help us be people who want to explore your goodness, who don't want to just stay in one section of the, of the house, of the property, of the inheritance, to explore all of it. Challenge us not just to stay safe, 
but to go out there and enjoy all you have to give us and all you want to do through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.